welcome back to the horrors hi i'm elise i'm shay happy week before halloween (laughs) i think we're here with a pretty creepy movie today for the season i think you were afraid to go into this one for quite a while yeah for maybe good reason (laughs) i think it was for very good reason but i got through it and we're gonna talk about it today this is sinister from 2012 Let's get into the ladies. There are very few ladies, but it's also, I think, a pretty small cast film anyway. First, we have Juliette Rylance, and she plays our leading lady, Tracy Oswalt. She's an English actress and producer known for her roles in The Nick, Mick Mafia, and Perry Mason. And then we have Claire Foley as Ashley Oswalt. She is an American actress. In addition to this role, she's known for her roles in Do No Harm and Orange is the New Black Ooh. as a young version of Piper. Fun. Yes. There are some ghosts that appear later in this movie, but they were not listed on Wikipedia. And I'm wondering if it was a deliberate choice to be super creepy. I don't know. Were they ever really there? Yes. So getting into some pre-plot from IMDb, this film is directed by Scott Derrickson and co-written by Scott Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill. Derrickson went on to work on Deliver Us from Evil from 2014, Doctor Strange from 2016, and The Black Phone from 2021. I feel like we've talked about The Black Phone before. Well, Ethan Hawke is also in The Black Phone. Well, the writer for this movie also worked on The Black Phone. Cargill worked with Derrickson on that, as well as Doctor Strange. So it seems like this director-writer pair have worked together on several films, and that's cool that Ethan Hawke also worked with them on other films. I kind of like that. I like when we research films and we see there are like returning stars or people that clearly like to work with each other. Exactly, It's nice. So Cargill got the idea for this script from a nightmare he had after watching The Ring 2002. In this film, there is very little blood, almost no cursing, and no sex. The filmmakers were hoping for a PG-13 rating, but they still got the R based on the content alone. I mean, the fact they didn't have to lean on those things to bring the scare factor up is very interesting. Yeah. Also thinking about this movie being PG-13, like, I think if I saw this movie when I was a kid, I would, I don't, I'm speechless. I would cease to exist. You wouldn't be here. No, (laughs) no. So in this film, Shay and I are going to talk about this a lot because it's a huge part of the film, but there is the use of Super 8 film, like the home movie film reels projection systems from the 60s and 70s that were so popular. And according to Cargill, Bagul, who is our villainous mastermind, also called Mr. Boogie, was originally intended to look more like Johnny Depp from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory from 2005. Oh my god. (laughs) But they decided against it after realizing Bagul would probably look a little silly. But maybe that would have helped them get a PG rating. I don't know. Well, I was about to say, I feel like that would have been like the Babadook treatment where you like look at Babadook and you're like, what the fuck <laughs> what is that? I read a couple things that people think that Bagul, the way he was actually designed to look in this movie, does still look like the Babadook just as a real person. Yeah, just as like a pro wrestler and not like <laughs> a little swindler with a top hat. <laughs> Some of the background music for the murder sequences we'll get to was taken from ambient tracks by bands associated with Norwegian black metal. Derrickson also took black metal into consideration for other design elements too, like Bugul's design, some of the symbols that we're going to see. So that's a theme that carries throughout. And finally, in 2020, Forbes magazine conducted a study, Science of Scare Project, where the heart rate of the viewers were monitored when they watched horror movies. 
Out of the 35 films, I'm not sure what the other 34 were, this film had the highest average heart rate at 86, spiking 131 BPM. Thus, it was deemed the scariest movie made at the time. (laughs) Shay is rolling her eyes. No, it just means it has effective jump scares Mm. because that's what this thing is measuring is just how quickly you go from a resting rate to an elevated rate. It's not taking in like psychological torment. (laughs) (laughs) Like obviously like we could sit here and watch Mother or The Night House and be fucking devastated, but we're probably not going to be as momentarily alarmed as we were in some of the jump scares we have in this movie. There are jump scares. And that's not to say that it's not scary or that it's like not a movie that was worth being rewarded for that. It was just kind of like, all right, come (laughs) on. Okay, so let's get into the plot then. What is this all about? All right, starting off with a pretty heavy trigger warning because (laughs) they they don't ease you into this. Mm -mm. It opens very much in a disturbing manner. So we see a family in a backyard with nooses around their necks, bags over their heads, And we see them at first struggling with their restraints, resting on the ground. And then we see a tree limb begin to fall. And that is almost being used as a pulley. So as this tree limb falls, they are being lifted up into the air. And obviously, they are struggling to breathe. We thankfully aren't seeing the expressions on their faces, but we see them kicking around and then eventually slowing to a still position. It's very grainy. This is like the beginning of the Super 8 film style that we see that kicks us off into a new family moving into a house. We have Ellison, his wife, Tracy, and their kids, Trevor and Ashley. Before we move on, I do have a piece of During the Plot trivia. I know we technically just got started, but I thought this was so eerie. The family in the tree scene were all played by stuntmen. However, when the scene was first done, whoever the stunt coordinator was fucked up the preparations so that when they tried to film, the family was actually pulled up. Oh, no. They were okay. They caught it and they survived. But of course, that guy was fired. But I thought because of the content of this movie, it was especially spooky that such egregious oversight like that happened. But anyway, they were okay. I mean, it reminds me of the Alec Baldwin situation. Oh, yeah. Like, which is just like horrible. But again, like when you're dealing with some of these really horrific, really intense ways that people die in these movies, there has to be such an incredible amount of oversight. And just, yeah, like the fact that who would have known if they would have been acting or not. It reminds me of when we just talked about The Exorcist with Linda Blair on that device that was, you know, shoving her up and down really fast and she fractured her fucking back, but they thought she was acting like it's just, oh my gosh. Yeah, that is a special layer of horror. Like the maddening moment where even in the haunt that we just covered a couple weeks ago, like they were in haunted house. So they thought everything was a joke, but we realized later it wasn't a joke. I feel like that's a documentary that needs to be put together is like moments on screen that were kept Oof. that just ended up being the actor not acting. Like, again, I think of Mother with Jennifer Lawrence fucking rupturing her diaphragm from oh. screaming and oh. shit like that and that being kept in there. Mm-hmm. Or the girl in Green Inferno almost actually drowning. I feel like that's going to be some sort of interesting, horrific piece of media to come. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, I'm just glad that all these stuntmen were okay. Yes. Okay, so yes, family moving into their new house. They seem to be all smiles, well, at least the husband and wife are. But then we see an officer pull up on a backwooded road and park behind another vehicle. It's the sheriff. 
he sees his other deputies in front of him and chastises them for wanting an autograph. So we're sowing some seeds that the family moving in might be a little bit famous for some reason, or at least one of the family members. The sheriff shoes off his other deputies and then asks to speak to Tracy, who is the matriarch of the family. Cut to a scene with Ellison talking to his daughter, Ashley. She's in her new bedroom and she's telling her dad that she didn't want to move to this house in the first place. But this is a nice tender moment between father and daughter. He ends up encouraging her to come outside and help unpack boxes. And we can see in this scene that she really loves to paint. And her dad encourages her to paint on the walls of her bedroom, which she has already started to do. So trying to make herself right at home. Ellison heads outside to talk to the sheriff. And the sheriff tries to persuade this family to immediately pack up and leave. Not a good sign. The sheriff also confronts Ellison about his writing career and that he, quote, helped a killer go free. So we're starting to get a little bit more context into what Ellison's line of work might be, but also we're sensing some tension between Ellison and this sheriff. Yeah, the sheriff is saying that this town doesn't need him or the circus that he brings with him. And if he's here to write a book, there's nothing to write about because they solved that case. So, okay, we are getting the context that Ellison is a true crime writer and he rose to prominence with a book called Kentucky Blood. But since then, he maybe has had some misses in the solving department (laughs) and he has moved here with interest of a recent string of murders and this sheriff wants no part of him. Allison's like, I assume you're not at my disposal. And he's like, well, you get one thing right. And then he just takes off. So obviously there's a lot of tension here. The sheriff also says in his parting words that he finds all this to be in extremely bad taste, which again, sows some other implication that there's something else going on underneath the surface that we might not yet know as audience members. And this even leads Tracy, his wife, to ask Ellison, we didn't move into a house a few houses down from a crime scene, did we? She said again. Oh, again? Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, I promise. Fucking asshole. But then inside, Ellison moves to the back window to gaze out into the backyard. And as the camera slowly pans around, we can see that the tree from the opening shot is in the fucking backyard, and that they have moved into the house where a crime scene had occurred. You motherfucker. That is lying by omission, if I've ever seen. Nope. (laughs) Nope. No knitted cardigan that you wear is going to make up for this (laughs) fucking egregious fuck up. Anyway, so later that night, Ellison thumps his way into the attic through a... Hatch attic door. A hatch attic door. We already know where this movie is going. Motherfucker. So while he's moving some things around up there, he finds an old box of Super 8 tapes. This is piquing his interest. Obviously, this came with the house. This man is a researcher. So he's like, great, I can use these. We get a dinner table scene where we have some more contacts saying that they haven't sold their old house yet. They're paying two mortgages. But Ellison keeps assuring his family that once he sells this new book, it's going to put them on easy street. The kids seem a little trepidatious about starting at a new school, especially because they always get made fun of based on what Ellison writes about. They're like, well, this time, just make sure to stay out of dad's office. So I guess in the past, they've stumbled upon the crimes that he's been writing about and it's impacted them negatively. So this is setting the scene of like, don't go into dad's office. Dad writes about bad things. And again, I think it's also setting the expectation that they're all really only doing this for Ellison's benefit. 
And Allison seems to be really singularly focused and not really understanding about how his writings or how his aspirations are impacting everybody else around him. Because it seems as though they've been moving from place to place to place or crime scene to crime scene to crime scene (laughs) in an attempt to chase this level of fame that we soon find out he hasn't really been able to upkeep. And that is further emphasized in the next scene. It is bedtime. The kids are put to sleep and Tracy and Ellison talk some more in their bedroom. And Tracy asks how long they're going to be here this time. Again, pointing to them moving around a lot. And she says that she wants to see him enjoy his work again. And she brings up his last book. This is when we learn it was published 10 years ago. And she even says that maybe his 15 minutes is over, which Shay and I watched this together and we both looked at each other like, ooh. But then as soon as she goes into this, it gets worse. She goes on to say, you can't spend the rest of your life chasing after that. I don't think I can do this again. If this goes sour like last time, I will take Trevor and Ashley and go to my sisters. Is that fair? And he says yes, but then they smile and kiss. I'm like, that is grounds for divorce. I I wouldn't be smiling. I would not be smiling. I would be deeply stressed. That (laughs) is like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, granted, like, I'm sure by what he's put her through, like the fact that she can so cozily and casually be like, I'm going to take my kids and go to the sisters if you don't write your fucking book. Like, what? I'm getting a sense that this isn't a surprise comment from her. You know, Ellison doesn't seem surprised she would say something so extreme. So maybe the strangely light tone of this serious content is pointing to other conversations that have happened. So this tension, it's not new. It's been carrying through their marriage for the last however many years. And it's also not like this is Ellison's only form of income. There's also been comments about like, well, I don't want to go back to editing textbooks. So it's a lot like Ellison seems like the work that he could be getting as like a professor or an editor, a publisher, whatever is like beneath him and he wants to be chasing this fame. And we see elements of that throughout the rest of the film where he's like watching his old interviews on talk shows and shit like that. Like he wants this prestige more than he genuinely wants to support his family. Yeah, for real. So after this conversation, he promptly gets to work in his office. He pins up several pictures from a box of files, like a stereotypical investigation scene. And he finds a crime photo of the attic in his collection, but the attic is totally empty. And he immediately writes a note on a sticky asking, how did the box of film get up there then? Because if no one was in this house between the investigation and them moving in, where the fuck did this box come from? So then he sets up the camera that he found and he watches the first reel of film. This is the one called Hanging Out. And he puts it in. And at first, it's just Super 8 film of a family outside playing games. This is the backyard of the house that he is currently in. They're being together. They're having fun. But then it cuts suddenly to the scene of the four people hanging from a branch, the branch breaking, and them being pulled up and hanged and killed. So Ellison is shook. He pours himself a stiff beverage, watches it again, taking notes this time and drinking some more. And then we see him write, where's Stephanie who made this film in a notepad? So we're guessing that Stephanie is this missing girl that he was at first interested in by moving into this house. He goes downstairs to look at the tree, but then finds Ashley in the laundry room sleepwalking. And as Allison tucks her back to bed, he looks at the paintings on her walls and says, 
are you gonna write a really good book this time so we can go home so again like this family is fucking miserable (laughs) yeah what the fuck and he reassures her puts her back to bed and then goes to watch another tape also like books take a long time to write especially books like these that involve so much research We're getting the sense that he is in the very early stages of his research. So everyone is hoping that he writes this book quickly, but I feel like this would take a minimum of like three years to do, which is a lot. That's a whole lifetime for a kid so young. And especially if he's going up against these accusations that he got it wrong last time, like he wants this one to be bulletproof. Mm -hmm. And again, Tracy is trying to be so supportive throughout this movie, being like, well, why don't you try fiction? Like, just get something in while you're working on the big thing. And he is just like, no, I want to do my thing. And it's just fucking infuriating to watch. So he's back in his office and he puts on another reel called Barbecue. We see a family down by, it looks like a lake, having a picnic of some sort. Maybe it's the backyard of their house. But again, a very similar scene to the first movie. We see the family all hanging out. It seems like everyone's getting along. But again, it's from this very voyeuristic perspective. We're not sure who's filming. It looks like the 1970s. And all of a sudden, we abruptly cut to nighttime. There's a weird singing going on in the film, which is where that black metal soundtrack is coming in. And the family is shown tied up and unconscious inside of their car. It looks like we are in a garage of some sorts and the car is inside the garage. We see some tins of kerosene and suddenly the car is set on fire. The cameraman backs up, gets a full shot of the car burning inside the garage, and then the film cuts out. So this is enough for him to wise up and be like, this is beyond me, I gotta call the police. But as he's waiting to be connected, he looks at his copies of Kentucky Blood. And when the operator asks how they want him to direct their call, he hangs up. Again, there's this moral quandary between him wanting to do the right thing, but him wanting to be the guy that solves these murders. But as he studies himself back at his desk, we're getting the idea that he thinks there is a serial killer that has committed all of these crimes and uses these tapes to create mementos of his killings. But he doesn't understand why he left this box of evidence in this house. As he goes to put in another, he turns it off when he hears something banging throughout the house. So he goes downstairs, checks on Ashley because she was just sleepwalking, but she's in bed. He hears more creaking, walks down a hallway, and sees a moving box at the end of the hallway. Oh my god. And at first it looks like the Super 8 box, because we're like, oh my gosh, what's happening? The box moves, and I didn't realize this was Trevor at first. I I was like, why is there a naked lady in the box? (laughs) But his son, Trevor, emerges from the box, Archie back style. So his head comes up, and then both of his arms reach up, and then Trevor's almost like hanging upside down, facing Ellison. Like a backbending jack-in-the-box. Yes, like a backbending (laughs) jack-in-the-box. And is screaming. Oof, this was... This was creepy. Yeah. But Ellison picks him up, takes him outside. At this point, Tracy joins them because Trevor was screaming and all of them seem panicked, but they also seem to be aware of what's going on. So Ellison is comforting Trevor, rubbing his chest, being like, just look at the stars, just look at the stars until he calms and says, why are we outside? Tracy's like, oh, I thought these night terrors were over. This seems to be something that Trevor has struggled with before. They've never been this bad before. Ellison says to Tracy, I have to tell you something. And we think that he's going to come clean. But instead, he just says, I'm really sorry. Again, this moment where he wants to be honest, but then he walks it back. Yeah. And this 
is, again, I know a trope we've talked about a lot. Some character knowing a lot of information, but denying another just as capable adult the right to know that information. So that is another maddening feature of this film. The next morning, Tracy and the kids leave to do their thing. It's the kids' first day at school. Tracy is going to take them and then explore town, you know, get used to her new setting. So Ellison goes upstairs and finally watches the video from the night before that he was about to play. This one is titled Pool Party from 86. He puts it on. We see a family having a nice day around their pool. Then all of a sudden the film cuts to a nighttime scene. Each of them are strapped to different, I guess, like lounge chairs their heads are facing the pool and then their feet are pointing away. So we can't see like their faces or bodies very much, but we can see that each one is tied to a rope and somebody is pulling the ropes one by one, bringing the lawn chairs with the people strapped onto them into the pool and drowning them one by one. And when Ellison pauses to get a better look because he thinks he sees something, he notices a strange figure standing at the bottom of the pool We can see his face. It's dark. He has dark hair. But of course, it's distorted by the flow of the water. So he pauses the film and tries to get a better look. But then it looks like the film or there's something with maybe the light bulb burns out so he can't see with the projector anymore. The camera overheats and it catches the film reel on fire. So it's almost like the figure is being looked at, but it doesn't want him to be looked at. Right. So it seems like a supernatural occurrence that as soon as Ellison kind of captures this image of this figure that's under the water, the tape just kind of combusts. So then it looks like he does some research how to maybe cut away the burnt part of the film and and re-stitch it together. And then he digitizes the scene. So he gets it onto his laptop and then manages to zoom in once again on his computer and get a better look at this figure. As he's doing this, he overhears his family fighting. I'm guessing this is like after school time at this point. And through context, we find out that Trevor drew a picture with permanent marker on the school's whiteboard of four people hanging from a tree. Tracy is pissed because Trevor found out what happened at the school, like literally day one, like there was no protecting him. And Tracy's really pissed at Ellison for Trevor finding out so quickly. That that's what Ellison is researching. But little do they know. That they're in the house. Yeah, they don't know that yet. But it seems like in this moment, Tracy and Ellison are not aligned as far as how to handle the situation with Trevor. Of course, Tracy is pissed, like Shay said. But Ellison is like really downplaying it. He's like, it's not a big deal. Forget about it, which is really frustrating. Also, like, thinking about, you know, this community is the one that endured the murder. Like, what if some of those kids at the school knew the family? You know, there were school-age kids. So it is a really serious thing. (laughs) And again, like, it puts you on the sheriff's side being like, listen, like, we suffered already. We put this to bed. We don't need you going all over town and, like, re-traumatizing them. Like, of course, we're, like, positioned to not look at this sheriff as a good guy. But Mm -hmm. from someone who probably had to see that experience firsthand, yeah, Ellison's just an itch. It is bedtime again. Oh my god, there are so many nights in this movie, so many night times that arrive. Bedtime again, Ellison is alone in his office. It seems like this man is working like 24 hours a day. So he watches another video. This one is called Sleepy Time from 98. It's somebody moving through a dark house, illuminating their path with a flashlight. And all of a sudden we cut to a family bound with tape by the wrist and ankles in their bed. This is a husband and wife, it seems. The camera shows somebody slitting their throats and then moving into the next room, the next room to slit the children's throats. I want to know what happened to the chihuahua. There is a chihuahua. I would like to know the status of the chihuahua. I don't want to know. 
Unless it's good. Unless it's good. I do not think the Chihuahua had its throat slit because <laughs> we see no evidence of that. But I would like to know what the Chihuahua saw. <laughs> oh, my God. That's something. There should be a support group for pets of horror movies. Yeah. I want some sort of show that's like big mouth adjacent. <laughs> Where it's like a support group for family pets that always see the shit first, but can't communicate with their humans as to like, what the fuck is going on? And then they just have to pretend and not understand that that thing is like gone away now. Like, I want Jonesy the cat. (laughs) I want the dog from the Conjuring movie. Mm -hmm. May he rest in peace. (laughs) Like, that's I want a collection of these poor mammals Mm -hmm. to just sit and be able to talk through their experiences because God knows their humans don't know what the fuck is going on. Yeah, yeah. I love that. No one steal my idea. I'm going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Ellison spends a little bit more time looking over what he can see as the camera moves through the house and he sees a symbol on one of the walls. He is able to illuminate the image enough on his screen that he gets a city name that's written on, I don't know, like a box or a poster or something. Anyway, it's St. Louis. So he's able to use the date on the film and the content of the murder and the city name to do a quick internet search and find an old news report about a family in their St. Louis home in 1998 being murdered by stabbing. It's the Miller's family, and they were all killed except for their 13-year-old son, Christopher Miller, who vanished. And this is spooky because it's aligning with what we know about the murder he is there to investigate. After watching this new sequence, he hears noises again, because he's always going to hear noises when it's nighttime. (laughs) And he goes on a search around the house to see where the noise is coming from. And he's ultimately led to the attic once again, where he ascends the ladder and searches. He's hearing more noises. He sees another box on the floor. He opens it up and finds a fucking snake, a king snake, which I believe is poisonous. After he gets spooked by the snake, he finds in the box a bunch of kid drawings of the murder scenes that he has already watched on the Super 8 films. It's on the lid of the Super 8 box, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because it almost works like a library card. But instead of like, who borrowed this book? It's like, who killed their parents? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And then he hears noises again. So he goes to investigate further, but then he falls through the fucking floor of the attic. And then we immediately cut to a little bit later, paramedics have arrived at the house. They're wrapping his leg where he probably was cut from falling through the floor. An officer is on the scene talking to Ellison more about the noises that Ellison heard in the attic and what happened. And this is the deputy that's a big fan. This yes. is the one that was fangirling <laughs> earlier in the movie. And the deputy kind of takes this opportunity to be like, hey, you know how when you write these books and there's always an acknowledgement where like you couldn't have done it without the assistance of deputy so-and-so? <laughs> I could be your deputy so-and-so. <laughs> And Ellison's like, okay, like, this is my in because he was already told by the sheriff that they would not be at his disposal. But here's this deputy being like, hi, I want to be famous too. So he's like, okay, can you get me some details on these murders? So then Ellison later is watching old footage of himself on a talk show talking about Kentucky blood. And the interviewer poses a question to him like, would you rather justice be served or be as successful as you are, like through this book. I don't know, it's a weird question, but he essentially says, I'd rather cut my hands off than write a book for fame or money. And I think that sits with him because he, again, isn't really trying to serve justice because he's not really talking straight with anybody. Mm -hmm. He just wants the recognition for being the guy that solves it. 
we're starting to see that there's an increased level of alcohol usage in conjunction with his research. So from the outside, he kind of looks like he's falling apart a little bit. He continues his researching. He looks more closely at the kid drawings that he found in the attic of the murder scenes. And he sees in each drawing, there's kind of an outside figure who looks dark and mysterious with an arrow pointed to it, labeling him as Mr. Boogie. I guess in all the pictures, there's also arrows pointing to each of the family members and labeling them like mom, dad, Amber, you know. Mm -hmm. So then there's an arrow to a Mr. Boogie. So Ellison is like, who the fuck is that? But he also notices that that character in the pool scene is standing at the bottom of the pool, which reminds him of the man he saw at the bottom of the pool early on in the Super 8 film that he zoomed in on. So he then goes back and watches the other films that he has now digitized on his laptop and tries to see if he can locate Mr. Boogie. And he does. We have Boogie in the pool, Boogie in the bush, (laughs) Boogie in the background. So he finds this shadowy figure in all of the movies, which is like, how do you keep your cool? (laughs) You don't. How do you keep your fucking cool? That's it. That's my question. (laughs) The knitted cardigan, I guess. I don't know that he has not taken off for the entirety of this movie. You know what? I guess that's right. If you want to look calm, cool, and collected and also be calm, cool, and collected, get a fucking knitted cardigan. And you know what I did after, (laughs) like, this was a formative experience for me. I looked at that knitted cardigan and now I own four. And I call them my Ethan Hawke cardigans. (laughs) Wait, wait. And they're also the kind of cardigans that have that little collar. They do. And they have the elbow pads. Yes, the elbow pads. Okay, well, now I know the secret. Well, it's actually true because he's wearing t-shirts the entire time. And that's like the best way to just dress up that you did not put any effort. It's just like you put a knitted cardigan on. Taylor Swift knew. Taylor Swift knew. And now add it to the list of things that she has used to make an empire. I'll never look at a cardigan the same. Now, after Taylor Swift, especially after this movie... So he gets a call from Deputy So-and-So where he has a couple of the addresses of the crimes that he was looking into. Ellison makes a connection that he does not share with Deputy So-and-So that one of the addresses is shared between the two family members. The house that one family was killed in was the house another family used to live in. Yeah, so it seems like the Miller's house, which was the Sleepy Time video from 98, is the former address of the current family that he's researching that then moved to the house that he is now in. But he does not share this with W so-and-so. He's making this own connection again, showing how selfish he is about like not wanting to necessarily use the tools at his disposal to solve it quickly. He just wants to solve it by himself. Meanwhile, as he's on the phone, we can see that he still has his windows open on his computer. And one of them is frozen or paused rather on Bagul's face from the barbecue video from the car garage fire. And all of a sudden, Bagul's paused face unpauses and looks directly through the computer screen at Ellison. So Ellison sees some movement out of the corner of his eye, looks to his screen, which has now gone back to its original paused position. But he's freaked out enough that he goes in to close all of his windows. But then he sees new footage on his computer in a separate window. And when he presses play on the video, it's him when he was in the attic and fell through the floor. And it looks like the camera was right up against his face, which of course he couldn't see because it was dark. And when he falls to the floor, it looks like there are a bunch of little children hands pulling him down through the floor. Again, (laughs) how do we handle this? So he, of course, freaks out. But before he can really fully process, he hears another noise and investigates outside of the house. 
He goes towards the bushes out back where he's hearing noise, and he finds Trevor again having another sleepwalking episode. He drops his phone flashlight in the heat of scooping up Trevor in his arms and taking him back to the house. Tracy meets him there, gets Trevor. Ellison heads outside to get his phone flashlight and his baseball bat that he was armed with that he also dropped. But then he encounters a Rottweiler. Okay, yeah. I want to understand what about these animals is significant. Well, it comes up later. Who? The animals. Does it? Yeah, but barely. I'll say that. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So then as Ellison is facing down this Rottweiler that seems like it might pounce, we get a shot of Ellison and behind him we can see the silhouettes of five children, which we are assuming one of them is likely Stephanie, one of them is likely Christopher, and the other three might be also children missing from the scenes of the other murders. We don't know that, but that's kind of what it's giving. Again, five children, five super eight reels. And that is something that all of these crimes do have in common, is that the entire family is killed, all but one kid who disappears. Oh my gosh. Anyway, the dog all of a sudden decides, I'm gonna go. And it just walks away, which is great. So Ellison heads back inside. Tracy immediately confronts Ellison and is like, look, Trevor's night terrors are worse than I have ever seen them. The kids are miserable. Can we please leave? Like this is obviously negatively impacting the kids. This is such a problem. But Ellison tries to talk her down and convince her that he's fine. The kids are fine. Everything is fine. We're just going to stay where we are and work on this book. I'm on to something, he tells her. I am on to something. So the next morning, the deputy drops by to give him some files. And while they're sitting and talking on the couch... He's like, listen, I'm happy to help you, but you need to let me in on the loop so that I know how to like cover you because the sheriff doesn't like that you're investigating this. So Ellison shows the deputy his office and notes how the murders are really spread out all over the country. And based on the amount of time in between the murders, it would put a serial killer in his 60s or 70s, which again is looking a little suspicious just based on the nature of the crimes. And this is where we get the confirmation that in each instance, the killer murdered the entire family, but one child who disappeared and left behind this symbol. So the deputy refers him to a professor on the occult because there always just has to be one. Mm, This is Shay's favorite little trope. It is. There's always a professor that just knows shit. But at least because this movie was made in 2012, we don't have to have that convenient resource two blocks away. We get to FaceTime with this man. (laughs) which feels a little bit more realistic, at least geographically, it's not too much of a coincidence. But at first, he does not say he will see this occult expert. He doesn't seem interested in that. I think he's thinking more like, maybe that's not his vibe, or he, I don't know, maybe he's reluctant to appreciate that role. But after deputy so-and-so leaves, which by the way, we never, he is literally credited. (laughs) He's deputy so-and-so. After he leaves, Ellison watches another film, Yeah, this one is, well, you didn't really watch this one. You want me to cover it? Well, I didn't watch it, but then I looked up right as I saw the briefest moment of what was going to happen, and then I did cover my eyes. Right. (laughs) Well, Shay was also like, oh, this one. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, this is... The one. The one that the film is most known for. Do you want to talk about it? I mean, you're the one that probably is the most credible when it comes to saying what actually happens. Right. (laughs) And this one has been in like compilations for like top 10 jump scares of the 2010s. Like this is one where if you've seen this movie, like you're just not ready for it. So in this film, we see, again, the camera's rolling and there's a very limited light source. So we're in the dark and we're in a backyard or in a front yard. We're in a yard. 
we see that the camera is positioned on a riding lawnmower. I actually don't know if it's riding, but it's positioned. It's like just a handheld mower, like a gas mower, but nothing too extreme, just like your average lawnmower. And it's red. It's red. Well, and it's awesome because it does have that like stark contrast against the green of the grass so that when you do see what happens, like there's no mistaking what happens. Mm. But the camera is pointing down, kind of illuminating the path of the lawnmower. And again, there's this single beam of light. And, you know, we're going, we're going, we're building tension, we're building tension. And then all of a sudden, you see that in the path of the lawnmower is somebody who is tied up and restrained and the lawnmower runs over their head. And that's why I thought it was a riding mower, because a push mower would be like really hard to do that, especially when we find out who's doing it. I 100% agree, but I don't think it's a riding mower just because from that narrow beam of light, we can see the full width of the mower. No, I believe you. I think logistically in my head, I'm like, this is not possible. (laughs) I can't even use my lawnmower on my like four by four lawn. You do have a tiny lawn. It's tiny, but yo, it is hard to push to turn the mower. But I am sure the killer had everybody lined up one by one so they didn't have to worry about any crazy turns. (laughs) But this comes up so fast and it's just a jump scare because you don't see anything in the path of the mower and then you see the suggestion of it and obviously Ellison is shook. That is also really interesting, the way that the jump scare is, because we've talked a lot, especially in supernatural-themed movies like this, about blank space being used as either jump scare bait or actual jump scares, like in Insidious, for example. It's a full camera shot with like background, foreground, subject, that whole thing. And it's kind of waiting for something to pop up in the background. Whereas this, it's such a limited space it almost feels like our guard is a little bit down because we're not worried about what's going to show up in the blank space. Because there is no blank. Yeah. I've got a blank space. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, all of a sudden. (laughs) Are they, I think he only sees one murder before he turns off the camera. Yes. I feel like the way that he reacts to that feeds the way we react to that. And the way he quickly turns off the film, I think, makes that image linger all the more powerfully in our minds as well. So I feel like the way that the whole scene is constructed is really effective. So this is enough to convince him I'm calling the professor. (laughs) Yes. But not the police. No, not the police, (laughs) just the professor. Professor also is a big fan. And this is where you brought up, he must be famous enough where he has all of this claim to fame. Like, why does everyone know him if he just had one hit? Yes. So I brought this up to Shay because he made a comment earlier in his conversation with Tracy when Tracy was asking him to leave. He said something to her about this could be his In Cold Blood, which is a famous nonfiction. Well, sometimes it's called a nonfiction novel. It's a true crime story. A lot of people have read it. If you haven't, it might be worth it to read by Truman Capote, the same guy who wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's, which always blows my mind because they're so different. (laughs) But as soon as he gets on the phone with this occult professor, the professor immediately tells him what a big fan of Kentucky Blood he is. He thinks the book is amazing. He knows exactly who he is. And we know Kentucky Blood came out 10 years ago. But this is such a theme with this movie where we are seeing people compliment Ellison and tell him how incredible his book was. But meanwhile, we're hearing Ellison say that the book he's working on right now could be his In Cold Blood. And I was like, Shay, what the fuck? Like, this guy sounds like he's already impressed a lot of people, made a positive difference, at least with one book he did. Like, it seems like, yes, he's appreciative of the work he has released, but at the same time, he also doesn't see it for being as big of a deal as it was. Like, he's so caught up in doing it bigger, doing it better. Like, he doesn't even appreciate what he's already done. 
it almost makes me think of somebody who was like a child star, right? Mm. And like somebody who got their claim to fame by the first or second role that they ever did, but they're still trying to be a working actor, but they're always going to be known for Mm. what they did when they were a kid. And obviously I think that takes a toll on somebody where it's like, I've done a lot of cool shit since I was on Full House. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But if you look at Mary Kay and Ashley Olsen, they could be fashion designers. They could be doing whatever it is they're doing today and like still very much contributing to the world creatively. But it's like, oh my God, you're Michelle Tanner. You know what I mean? (laughs) So it's like- I feel like that's what this feels like for him, where it's Mm. like, yeah, you had your big hit and everything like that. And that's the thing in the academic world, like you're only riding off the royalties of books and book sales for so long. It's not like you have residuals from, you know, all that other things that are going on. So I think he is trying to establish himself as something beyond a one hit wonder. Mm hmm. So again, he's on this FaceTime call with Jonas. Jonas tells him he's such a big fan. And then they get to talk about symbols, specifically the symbol that Ellison sent him that he took screenshots of that had appeared in the various videos. So Jonas relates the symbol to the ancient Babylonian god, Bagul, (laughs) who would kill entire families and then take one of the children of the family to eat, whether it was metaphorically like their soul or literally like to feast upon the child. Bagul tricks the children that he takes under control and spiritually enslaves them, it sounds. And Jonas suspects that the murders, which are aligning with this Bagul lore, is part of a cult initiation rather than the work of a single murderer, which could account for, again, the span of decades that these murderers have been happening across. Is Jonas the one that mentions, or maybe it was in the previous scene with Officer So-and-so, they note the frequent use of a sedative, something that could help a killer overpower the family? I think it was Ellison trying to justify if this was a serial killer. In the later murders, they do use a sedative Mm, to be like, if this person is aging. Because I think Deputy So-and-so is like, who has the strength to like climb into a tree and rope all of these folks up? And he's like, well, he uses a sedative that could help him, Mm -hmm. all those types of things. But it's meant to show like how improbable it is for somebody to pull this off who could be aging. So later that night, Ellison wakes to the projector turning on around 3 a.m. So of course we know up to no good. Boo. (laughs) (laughs) He goes into his study and sees that the hanging out video is playing. He turns it off. Here's more thumping throughout the house. And I think this scene is campy as fuck. So like, (laughs) he's like snooping around the house in the dark, not turning the fucking lights on. And we start seeing ghost appearances of the missing kids. So there's a little girl jump scare. There's a ghostly appearance of a boy running by him. Then another little girl in the raincoat at the end of a hallway, a boy running towards him and then hiding. So it's just showing that there are a lot of victims in this and that there are more than one entity, I guess, at play. He re-enters his office and the tape is playing again. Then we cut from his perspective to the perspective of Ashley, who is awake and looking at a ghost girl who is crouching in the corner, shushing her and showing us that Ashley has painted the drawing of the hanging family on her wall. 
And Bagul's face. Oh, yes. And Bagul's face. But then again, this is reminding me of that scene in Insidious that fucking <laughs> infuriated me where I'm like, you mean to tell me that Tracy, the stay-at-home mom, isn't like putting laundry away and seeing the hanging photo on the fucking wall or like the creepy kid drawings? Like she is the most aware. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's fucking Rose Byrne looking at all like the black crown drawings and being like, what the fuck is going on? Like this picture has been drawn by your other child and you're not seeing it. It's yeah. front and center in her fucking room, but it's huge. What? Whatever. What the fuck ever. That is a good point because there's never a scene in this movie where a parent either tells the other that they saw it or that we see a parent see it. Right. Like that's the end of the drawing that Ashley made. So anyway, Ellison locks up his shit again and then sits on the couch with his baseball bat, keeping guard, but then he falls asleep and we watch a time elapsed video where the sun comes slowly up and he comes to now that morning has arrived. And he seems in bad shape. He obviously fell asleep on the sofa with a baseball bat in his hand and had a very traumatizing evening. The deputy, deputy so-and-so, ends up returning to the house. I think Ellison calls him to the house. Yeah, he calls and essentially asks him if the Stevensons, which was the family that lived in their house before, the hanging out family, was there something up with them? Do they have supernatural occurrences? Do they ever call the cops? And this is where deputy so-and-so is like, I think you just need to take a nap. (laughs) Yeah, and he even confronts Ellison about seeing a whiskey bottle in his office when he first entered that, I think, first conversation they had. First or second. He mentioned seeing it several times, so I think there were a couple times he was in Ellison's office. The conversation is essentially just showing that Ellison is alone in his research. Like, even Deputy So-and-So is like, I think you're overreacting a little bit. I think you just need to chill, take some time away. But Ellison is also not being straight up either. Like, he is not saying, no, this is what I saw. The most information we get out of him is when he tells deputy so-and-so that he felt like somebody was in the house last night. And of course, we know in that scene, he doesn't actually see the ghost children. We just see the ghost children. So he is truthful in that regard that we know his feelings were correct, but he doesn't talk about the projector, like locking it up and then finding it running. Maybe he knows that if the officer thought he was drunk, that he could just pin it on Ellison himself, or maybe even one of his children who both seem to be doing a lot of sleepwalking. Maybe I can't be as mad at Ellison as I thought I could be in this scene, but I can still be pissed at him for not telling Tracy any of this information. Especially with this next scene, he Mm -hmm. is fucking infuriating. Mm -hmm. So we see Tracy yelling at Ellison because Ashley drew on the walls outside of her bedroom. And that was a rule. Like you don't draw on the walls outside of your bedroom. And Ashley did. And she drew a girl on a tire swing. And that is the beginning of the hanging out video. That is Stephanie's video, the family of the house that they're in right now. Ashley says, it's Stephanie. She used to live here. She's the one that daddy's writing his book about. Yeah, so fucked, dude. So Tracy and Ellison start fighting in private. She's like, you didn't tell me we moved into a crime scene. And he's like, you asked me if we were living two houses down. (laughs) The way he said that and thought he had a point. She's like, so you're telling me no one died here. And he's like, no, it happens in the backyard. Oh my God. Like he is so in his mind, he has like crafted some sort of alternate reality. And it fucking sucks because Tracy is such a great person. Like Shay said it before, she's so supportive of Ellison's career. We can tell that even though she is unhappy and she's worried for the kid's happiness, that she really wants to be with Ellison. She loves him. She wants this relationship to work and she wants his dreams to come true. And for ultimately for him to be happy, which she puts emphasis on primarily above all else. 
else, his happiness. She wants to see him happy, but he completely disregards her as a partner, as a confidant. He lies to her and he comes up with just this like complete false story about what is truth and what is not truth to justify keeping this kind of information from her, especially when she asked him directly and he denied it. It's such a problem. And he goes on to say, these books are my legacy. Mm. And she's like, your children are your legacy. This marriage is your legacy. This is just your work. And the fact that you're not differentiating them is pretty much telling me everything I need to know. Like, yeah. And you literally turned to me and was like, Tracy ate. She did. Tracy ate. Like, she killed that confrontation scene because at every moment, Ellison tried to gaslight her and make her feel like she was overreacting. She did not succumb to any of those feelings of doubt that he was trying to sow. She said, absolutely not. She knew she was right. She confronted him at everything he said. And then she left that conversation the clear winner. I think the most shocking thing of all is just Ellison's belief somehow that he didn't do anything wrong. Again, when we see those scenes with Ellison watching his old interviews, 10 years ago, he really came across as this family-oriented guy who was motivated by justice. But when we see those interviews contrasting with how he is acting now, we can see that even if he thinks he's still motivated by those same reasons, he really isn't. Or those motivations have fallen secondary to this motivation for some kind of self-fulfillment, financial gain, some sense of self that he thinks he can get from this book. It just seems like Ellison is so emotionally unaware of himself, what he really is motivated by. And again, if he's lying to himself about the level of truth he's giving to his wife, I mean, who knows what else he's lying to himself about as far as his motivation. But then it makes the next scene interesting because Tracy finds Ellison, who has fallen asleep on the couch, watching old interviews of himself, where I guess the interviewer had asked, okay, you just got this big hit with Kentucky Blood. What's your next step? Is there another book? And he says, I want to spend some time with my family. Like, that's all I care about. I think it's proving that in his heart of hearts, his heart is in the right place, but he thinks that there's only one path to mm -hmm. like get back to that state of mind. Like he was able to provide through this work, he was able to provide through this book, and he sees this path as sacrifice now and give time later when obviously Tracy's like, give time now and give the book a rest. You know what I mean? Right. But this makes her, I guess, forgive him a little bit. But then again, he wakes to the sound of the projector. Oh, wait, before he wakes to the sound of the projector, we get a shot of them sleeping in bed and a single flashlight beam shines Ooh, on his face. Yes. Like we had seen so many times in the Super 8 film. But then, yes, he wakes up to the sound of the projector running. Except when he goes into the projector room, the camera is missing. So he goes wandering around the house and he sees the attic stairs down. He ascends and sees that the projector is going and is showing a bunch of kids <laughs> watching the screen. <laughs> and then the ghoul just sticks his head out right into Ellison's line of sight. So he falls down, injures himself, and then the camera and tapes are thrown at him down from the attic. And this freaks him the fuck out. He promptly goes to the backyard and sets everything on fire. And when Tracy's like, um, what the fuck are you doing? Because he's making all the noise in the world. He's like, you were right. We have to leave. I made a mistake. We should never have came here. Pack the kids. We're leaving. There they go. They are off. He's driving. And even Tracy is like, maybe you should slow down. But then they end up getting pulled over by the sheriff who is out on patrol. The sheriff asks what they're doing out at this time. And Allison tells him, we are doing what you told us to do. We are leaving and never looking back. 
The sheriff asks him if it's because of the town. He doesn't want to end up reading later in Ellison's book that the town drove Ellison and his family out of the community. But Ellison tells him there isn't going to be a book. And the sheriff lets them off with a warning and says, just keep the speed reasonable until you get out of the county, (laughs) which assuming is out of his jurisdiction. I was like, they moved back to their estate. Yeah. Oh my God. So they moved back to their old house, but it is a full estate. I was like, why would you ever leave this place? It's gorgeous. But again, it's because they couldn't afford it. Yeah. We see Ellison moving in, wiping his whiteboards clean. You know, he seems to be like washing his hands of this case, but then he gets an email with three images from the professor. Mm-hmm. So he FaceTimes, but the professor and the images are of the symbol that has been present in all of the videos. The professor goes on to say that the children exposed to this imagery are especially vulnerable in that the imagery or the symbol acts as a gateway between the ghoul's realm and the human realm. Because essentially, like over time, just the use of this symbol was enough. But in order for Bagul to keep passing the knowledge of the symbol on, it's almost like Freddy, where it's like you have to know who he is or say his name, and that's what kind of gives him access to you. These films or these Super 8 videos were the way of passing the symbol along so that the chain could continue. Ellison is now afraid because he's like, well, what happens if you destroy the imagery? Which is what he did. He burned the films. And Professor's like, what kind of book are you writing? (laughs) Essentially saying like, are you writing a fiction thing or is there something actually happening? And Ellison just hangs up on him. But also this is where Jonas mentions the snake and the dog and a scorpion. Okay, I missed this. So Yeah, so he says that those are kind of part of Bagul's imagery. And now I'm thinking about the Super 8 films. Like, we did see a chihuahua in one of the movies. Yeah. And of course, we saw the Rottweiler in the backyard, which was kind of random. But I'm wondering if there was also a snake, like a snake and a scorpion in one of the movies. Maybe at the scene by the lake. I don't know. I was kind of wondering if maybe those animals appeared beyond just the chihuahua in the actual films, because we are getting the sense that these films are kind of the new way that Bagul is entering the lives of these families. And it would make sense, especially because when we watched this, this family is in Pennsylvania. I'm like, oh, yeah. I have never seen a fucking scorpion in Pennsylvania before. Like, Wait, I think they do exist by little streams or like bodies of water. Scorpions? Yeah, like I remember going on a camping trip in the sixth grade and we got a picture chart of like, all the maybe kinds of bugs that we might find in this stream when we went sifting. I feel like a scorpion was on there. I thought scorpions were desert animals. I don't know. I think there are different kinds of scorpions, but I could be wrong. I thought they were like sand animals. And I thought the presence of the scorpion was like, okay, like this doesn't fit. And even the snake, it's not like it's a garter snake or like a garden snake. It's a poisonous snake. Yeah, like that's not. They're not native. I mean, a dog is a dog, right? Dogs can be anywhere. But because these families have moved from all over different areas of the region, like California, like it's kind of showing their presence or like symbols of the region that they're from. Maybe. I don't know. Or again, we know Bagul is written to be some kind of Babylonian person. So really, are we really getting into that desert imagery? I don't know. And I have a feeling that these questions we have are partially unanswered in the movie. (laughs) It's fine. We don't need to know. We didn't even bring up the scorpion when it happened because I'm like, that's so fucking stupid. But now that you say that there's a meaning to it, it was like the first thing that happened. Where was the scorpion? Um, It was in the attic when he first found the Super 8. (sighs) Um, When they were moving into the new house, he lifts up the box and the scorpion was like under it. So they hang up, and then right away, Ellison gets a call from Deputy So-and-so, but he ignores the call. And he goes upstairs to the attic where he can, I guess, put something away, whatever the fuck he has in hand. But he sees that there is a box up there holding an unharmed projector and Super 8 film in his attic. 
along with a new film folder titled Extended Cut Endings. So Ellison immediately grabs a box, goes downstairs, opens up this envelope, and tries to put all the little film cuts together. He runs it through the projector, or actually before he can run it through the projector, Officer So-and-So finally gets in touch with him. He calls again, Ellison picks up this time, and Officer So-and-So informs Ellison that he has discovered that not only did one family have an overlap in a house that they shared, but all of the families overlapped in the houses that they shared. It seems that every deceased family had once lived in the house where a previous murder took place. And he also learns that each new murder occurred shortly after the family moved from the crime scene house into a new house, which he traces all the way back to the original 1966 drowning video, which is the first Super 8 film that they have on hand. He even says to Ellison, by moving away from your house, you have marked yourself and your family as the next victims. And this aligns with him patching together these extended cuts of the videos or the extended endings. As the movies play, we get to see like an extra 30 seconds of each video. In the hanging out video, Stephanie is the one in the tree sawing the limb off that causes the pulley that kills her family. And then in the barbecue video, we see that there's a little boy responsible for throwing the match onto the car. And at the end of each video, they shush the camera and then disappear out of sight. And the rest of the videos play out, play out, play out, showing that each missing kid was responsible for the murders of their families. As Ellison is watching this, he starts to feel disoriented, faint, he's stumbling, he looks into his coffee cup and sees green. Almost like a glowing green liquid. Which, that was seen in the Sleepy Time video. Is there like a filter on here? Because like, poison isn't radioactive to the point where it's gonna like grow green. Yeah, it's literally illuminated. Yeah, (laughs) essentially it's just showing that he was poisoned and Ashley shows up in a doorway and says, Good night, daddy. So he passes out, starts foaming at the mouth, and before he passes out, Ashley says, I like that you made the movies longer. They're better this way. There's footage of Ellison bound and gagged along with Trevor and Tracy. We see Ashley dragging an axe around and pointing the camera at all of them. She says, don't worry, daddy, I'll make you famous again. And Ashley films herself hacking her father to death, and then she shushes the camera. We see there's a lot of blood spattered down the hallway. We're watching a camera point of view as it looks at all of the blood on the walls. There's also the symbol painted on one of the doors in blood. As the camera begins to roll still, it pulls out and shows that we are watching the screen and the kids from the video walk down the hallway to face the camera. They're all like looking at Ashley through the screen while Ashley is like standing in her living room still watching them on screen. They all tilt their head at the sight of something standing behind Ashley, and it's Bagul. So all of the kids run down the hallway and disappear. Bagul picks Ashley up, walks toward the screen, carrying her into the screen. So this is the transference between the real world and Bagul's realm. And we see that there is a new tape in the box named House Painting and is left there for the next family to move in and find. And then there's a Bagul jump scare that made Elise scream. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah, Bagul's little or big head pops into the screen right at the end of the film. And yeah, I screamed. 
As I should, you know? That's the movie. Okay, so in doing a little bit of research on this movie, first I looked up Bagul. Bagul was a figure that was designed for this film. So Bagul isn't actually written into folklore or real stories he was invented for this film, which I think they did a pretty good job of talking about him in a way that felt real. Or again, something that actually exists in storytelling throughout history. We joked before recording that the ghoul sounded too cool to be real because like <laughs> Payman and Pazuzu are real historically. Obviously, like real quote unquote is to be like questioned, but like they are historically written about mm-hmm. where I'm like, the ghoul is too cool of a name <laughs> to be as like fun as it is. <laughs> But I did find just some thoughts on what this movie might be trying to say overall. So this is theorizing Sinister as a cautionary tale. And this is from an article titled Sinister is a Tragic Cautionary Tale Under a Demonic Veneer by J.P. Nunez. He writes, quote, at its core, this is a story about a man who prioritizes his work over his family and it tears them apart quite literally. The supernatural evil they experience is just a metaphor for that deeper reality. So even though the film ends in one of the bleakest and most depressing notes I have ever seen, it's not just evil for evil's sake. Rather, it shows us the deepest, darkest depths of evil in order to unmask it and reveal its true face. So then he goes on to discuss the effects of the house and this investigation on the kids. So again, Trevor's night terrors and Ashley's ultimate possession, showing how Ellison's ambitions are affecting his kids. But then, of course, Ellison's arguments with Tracy that show flat out his refusal to leave the house and prioritize the well-being of his family over his book. And then, of course, that dialogue about the book being his legacy and Tracy needing to remind him that his kids are his literal physical legacy. So some of that symbolism comes in the kids' reactions, but also is very obviously inserted in the conversations between Ellison and Tracy. And this also makes me think about the movie's title, Sinister. So of course, I thought that title had more to do with the ghoul and the children that he possessed as being a sinister force. But based on the assertions of this article, I'm wondering if Sinister could also connect to Ellison and his motivations, or at least the clouding of his motivations, because I don't think we're meant to see him as an evil person, more so misguided. So that was kind of cool thinking about the title of the film and what its implications might be. Yeah, I think so too, especially because deception is something that has driven Ellison toward his success. Like he had to uproot his family, he had to do all these types of things. You know, we think that his motivations are to like solve this case and be a citizen detective, but his intentions are to be relevant again and to be a best-selling author again. So he might appear as though he is just a true crime writer who wants to solve a case, but his intentions are selfishly motivated. So aside from this article, I didn't really find too much about this movie other than sources that explore why it's so scary, (laughs) Uh, which we already kind of talked a little bit about as we went through just things that stood out to us or moments that seemed especially prominent. Aside from this, I just had a couple questions that I figured we could talk about. So the first is within the theme of this movie, if this is what happened to the Oswald family, what do you think happened with the other families? Do you think that there was similar dysfunction in the family dynamic that ultimately led to their demise? Do you think Bagul might be operating more randomly at times than what it seems like symbolically is happening in this movie? 
I like that idea because when we watch typical haunted house movies, the entity or the presence seems to be drawn to the physical space. But I like that even when families try to change location, the thing follows them or the dysfunction or the sinisterness always follow them. And it's showing that it's not necessarily like the space you inhabit that creates the problems. It's the problems that create the space that's fostered. So I kind of like that Bagul can't even enact things until you move to a separate space. And granted, like him and the kids are obviously pushing tensions, pushing tensions. But it also makes me think that these videos spanned six decades. So how long did it take for that dysfunction to be sown? Obviously, in this case, I think this was like a pressure cooker because Allison was already very driven and already very dismissive of his family where it took like what, like a couple weeks, a month for them to get up and move house. But are these all of the tapes that we know of? Are there more tapes that occur in between that we don't know of yet? But it's showing that it might take a lot longer for like a family to fall apart or a kid to be influenced because Ashley already felt alone. Ashley already felt away from her support system. So that was a lot of a quicker timeline for her to be taken over than perhaps somebody who is more supported and well-adjusted. That also makes me think about the parts of the films that we saw. For example, with the hanging out video, we saw all four people killed at the same time. But in the home invasion video, we got a close-up shot of who we would assume to be the father figure in the house. I don't think we got the same thing with like the mother. I know we went into another kid's room, but we didn't see it in the same graphic detail. And then with Ashley's video, it looked like she just filmed her father's death. But I don't know if that was just the film sparing us the details of her going on to the rest of her family. So I was wondering if maybe there's some kind of correlation with who appears in the film in a quote unquote leading role Mm -hmm. and maybe like what dysfunction was sown. But I'm not sure because the hanging out family, again, it was all four of them. And then that, I guess, leads me to my other question, which was, do you think the Super 8 film has any symbolic significance? Like, why Super 8? Why are we still seeing this being used in 2012? I mean, I think the appearance of it is just flat out creepy. Obviously, we could have used VHSs and we see Ellison digitizing things. But, you know, I don't think spooky DVDs give the feel as reels of tape do just creatively. But it's like you said, you said Super 8 was like created in the 60s, which is like when the first murder was said to happen. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, what did it take before then? You know, that kind of makes me wonder because of what you said about Ellison digitizing the Super 8 film. Maybe Bagul has to wait for somebody to update (laughs) the... Seriously, though, because... The HD quality. (laughs) Because the first murder, I think, was 1966. Super 8 was invented. I've got this from Google. I can't remember my source. You can fact check me. The date I got was 1965. So what if in that first murder... There was some adult in that house who was really interested in history and decided to put some of the images, the Mm. Bagul images, into like a Super 8 slideshow for maybe some kind of presentation if we get another occult professor or some kind of tracking historically of these images they were researching. And then that's how Super 8 was introduced into Bagul's repertoire. But now Ellison has digitized those images and again, I know there's only a Sinister 2, and based on what you told me about it, it doesn't sound like this is They don't part follow of that it. line, yeah, but I understand but what you're saying. It is interesting, like, maybe Ellison himself, because he digitized this, opened the door for another realm of technology for Bagul to live inside of. Because if Bagul brought back that camera and those reels from the fire, he can probably take those videos right out of Ellison's deleted files and carry them out somewhere else on the internet. 
It's almost reminding me of elements of the ring where you duplicate the tape and that's what spares you. Like by duplicating or making another copy of the VHS by spreading it yourself, you spare yourself Mm. the fate. Yeah, like I wonder like what was it before? Was it Polaroids? Was it drawings? Obviously this symbol and Bagul date back to Babylonian times or whatever like that. But the element in which he's able to expand his reach is based on that image being replicated. And the Super 8 was just of its time the best way to capture it. I don't know. I mean, obviously it looks creepy and we're all scared (laughs) watching it and there's like limited light sources and everything like that. But it is interesting that that's what we're being left with. And I don't know if it's just because how we always say like, oh, it's just from somewhere else. That means it's scary. (laughs) Or like, it's just an old film that makes it scary. I don't know. I'm wondering if they were to ever try to revive the franchise, would it take the form of something that's a little more modern? I'm not sure. Well, I know Super 8 film is also creepy because it was used in like snuff films, Mm -hmm. which... I did not know. I looked up the definition of snuff films. (laughs) I did not know. I thought snuff was just a synonym for pornographic. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize that snuff films by definition always have like a murder. Mm -hmm. Snuff feels like such a dirty word. It doesn't seem heavy enough to denote a murder. I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, I know. So I think that connection is being made here too with that Super 8 frame. I think for people who might be more familiar with like the history of Super 8 or maybe used to watch Super 8 films or images on projectors when they were younger, I think maybe that horror would be more real in that association. Also, I have a question on here that you asked earlier, mm-hmm. quote, why do the kids always have to draw shit? <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Why does Ashley have to draw everywhere? I don't know. I mean, I think it's just showing the rate in which Bagul is taking over the kids, like to show the progression of it. First, it was just Trevor drawing the stick figures of the murder. But then Ashley goes on to not only draw that, but then Bagul's face, but then also the tire swing, like showing mm. Stephanie before the murders. And it makes me wonder if Bagul was speaking to Trevor and Ashley at the same time, and Ashley was just the first one to fold. And that is actually something that I was talking to Elise about, about the second one. It's interesting because Sinister 2 flips the perspective because Sinister 1, we're watching Ellison like kind of discover the pattern from an adult perspective. But in Sinister 2, we are watching from the perspective of the kid who is being enticed by the other ghost kids and kind of showing what Ashley was going through the entire movie while Ellison was on his own journey. So I'm wondering if the drawings were just the way of showing the influence being taken over or if it, you know, it's just like kids draw things and they're creepy and they don't (laughs) like they don't have the words to describe it. So they're just going to show you type situation. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the last question I had was just Tracy, question mark. Just wondering if you had any final thoughts about Tracy or even Ashley, who is our other lady in this movie. I mean, it's not surprising to me that Ashley was the victim or Mm -hmm. Ashley was the one to like take over. I mean, when we look at that gang of ghost kids, it's equal in terms of representation of gender. Like there was three boys and then Ashley is the third girl to join the troop. I would have been more upset if it was just like little girls or something like that, kind of showing like, oh, like it's just as easy to take over one than it is the other, like all that kind of stuff. But that doesn't appear to be the case. And I think, you know, they do try to misdirect us with Trevor and his night terrors. But when it comes to Tracy, I don't know, like I liked that she bit back, but it just seems as though like she's just there to like say what we're thinking. Yeah. And yeah, she doesn't ever like stand her ground. Like I would have liked to see her flee the house 
not by Ellison's request and mm-hmm. be like, I'm taking the kids. And when they relocate because she's like, fuck you, <gasps> he joins her there and is like, no, you're making a mistake. We're now in danger. And then obviously it would have painted her in like an irresponsible, like, but unknowing light, but it would have been his fault because he wouldn't have shared yeah. the information. She didn't know. And I think that would have been a little bit more compelling because it would be his fault because he didn't like share with the class what was going on. Or you know what I was thinking? If she did flee the house with the kids, would they still be murdered because part of the family unit is still in the original house? Interesting, yeah. So it's like, what if he found out about the pattern after she fled in this make-believe scenario, he found out about the pattern and realized that maybe if he stayed in that house alone in this scary, scary place, that he could save his wife and kids because he wouldn't have completely severed that connection. And that's so interesting that you say that because in the second one, the family that's moving about is a wife who is fleeing a domestic violence situation mm. and she does take the kids and run to hide from her abusive, I don't know if it's a husband or a boyfriend, mm-hmm. but like shit kind of starts going down when he finds them. Oh. So I do like that you said that because I think they actually do play with that a little bit. I don't know if that's exactly like the timeline or how things go on or if it just so happens that the rate of possession just catches up when the dad gets there. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting to be like, what is complete? Yes. Well, we did it. We did. (laughs) And now I can say I finally saw this movie and now I don't have to think about watching it because I watched it and it's over. I'm glad we covered it. I think it was a really good spooky season movie. So if you want to keep in touch with us about what we're up to in general, follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast and or feel free to contact us via email at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye.